Welcome to the last episode of the Goodwill Hunters Autumn Series, the NGO of the future. In this episode, co-host Rachel Mason Nunn and I speak with David Crosby and Joe Kavanagh on the challenges and opportunities highlighted in earlier episodes and discuss the challenge of change, how NGO leaders can overcome some of the specific barriers to transformation in NGOs. David Crosby is CEO of the Community Council of Australia. Previously, he was the CEO of the Mental Health Council of Australia and has served on the advisory board of the Australian Charities and Not-for-Profits Commission and of Impact Investing Australia. Joe Kavanagh is the chair of the Good Things Foundation and was previously CEO of Family Life. She's also an adjunct professor with Swinburne University. I hope you enjoy this final episode. The world needs a vibrant civil society. International NGOs have been vocal advocates and trusted implementers for decades, but their very existence is under threat. In a rapidly changing world, how do we ensure their continuing impact and sustainability? My name is Rachel Mason Nunn, founder of Goodwill Hunters. This series is brought to you with support from Alinea Whiteland. As a certified B Corporation, Alinea Whiteland is at home in both the for-profit and the not-for-profit sectors, giving us a unique appreciation for the diversity of stakeholders that contribute to quality development. We're so glad you can join us for this important conversation on the future of the NGO this autumn. Joe and David, great to have you both on our final podcast in this series. We've covered a lot of issues. In earlier episodes, we've spoken about increasing restrictions on civil society and especially advocacy. We've spoken about sector business models, fundraising, innovation, digital technologies, and workforce issues. Across all these topics, what are the key insights that have stood out for each of you? I think it's been a great series, Paul and Rachel, and I I think it's well worth listening to. Um, And, you know, knowing so many of the people, it's been really interesting listening to them reflect. But if I had to sort of choose uh, one kind of pearl in in all that's been uh, suggested, there was a constant theme about, you know, keep on taking risks, keep on pushing, keep on trying to achieve your purpose, try different things. But underneath that, I, I thought what Mark Reading said about failure was really important. Um, I actually think we learn more from our failures and we don't often share our failures to the degree that we could or should. But I know in my professional life, um, my best learnings have come when I've been hurt the most um, and I've got things wrong the most. And, um, you know, every day, the kinds of charities that I've worked in, people are getting feedback about what's working and what's not working and trying to improve. And often that kind of iterative process Um, accepts the fact that we're going to fail, that not everybody we work with is going to get better, that not every intervention we do is going to work. And yet um, the sort of public image that we all want to project is that all that we're doing is good. And uh, I think reconciling that with all that we're doing isn't good, some of it is not working that well, but you know what? We're going to let go of what doesn't work and To me, that's the critical part of innovation, accepting failure and being prepared to let it go. Yes, David, I've actually noted that too, that, um, that, you know, how do we make that a positive? 
that, you know, it, that even if we've failed, we've learned something. You know, we might have learned what not to do, um, but we can still gather that learning. I think one of the other themes that I heard too was about how we collaborate and bring people together. Um, and, you know, I think that we need to get a bit more sophisticated about what types of collaborations or cooperations that we need to build and in order to get the best value out of our sector. So I, I kind of like the idea of thinking of the caring economy as the sharing economy, that it, you know, that, and that's different from business approaches. It's different from the commercial world. You know, in getting to scale, mergers and acquisitions have got a place to a role to play, but there is also about how we share what we've got and lift together, um, which is something which I think has been eroded a bit in our sector through the whole competitive process. Um, and, you know, it's something that COVID, I think, has has really called out how important that has been, particularly to grassroots level, that people have, have been generous um, and reaching out to each other, building relationships. And I think we need to kind of call out that value of the NGO sector, um, which isn't necessarily on the balance sheet, but it's actually present in the way we live in our society. So I think you know, the NGOs of the future need to be more articulate about all of these other less tangible pieces that we also bring to creating a better society. Thanks, Joe, and thanks, David. It's, it's really good to hear those reflections on the series, and it sounds like we did a pretty good job at capturing uh, what's going on for the sector. But is there anything that you think wasn't covered? Were there any topics that we missed? For me, uh, one of the big issues is... Um, that that sense of service bias. Um, so when you're offering services to a community or a particular group of people and people come and use those services, often the feedback you get is incredibly positive. That's partly because the service that you're offering suits the people that come. It's almost tautologically true that the people you're servicing are the people for whom the service is a benefit and often the people that really need your service are not there and uh, that whole question of how you reach beyond uh, the people who your models uh, serve best um, I think is really challenging and the other one I'd add is the need to look uh, particularly in Australia I think within an Australian context so much of our funding comes from governments state and territory, about 50% of uh, the one um, the 166 billion we raise each year actually comes from governments. But government's been disrupted in a very real sense. And the old days of, you know, putting in proposals and getting funding for year on year on year are changing. And I think in terms of driving policy, you know, governments are behind the rest of the community. They're behind business. Uh, they're behind many community movements. And I, I think our capacity as charities to link directly into community and into shareholders and into other groups beyond the groups we might usually have engaged with. So I think that challenge of reaching beyond the way that we've traditionally offered services and the way we've traditionally operated, um, you know, I, I think we could do that 
better and we need to work on that harder if we're going to do it better. Interesting observations, David. Um, I guess I really thought that we could say a bit more about um, governance and strategy. Um, that I think all the Royal Commissions we've had that have highlighted sort of failures on behalf of vulnerable people, um, you know, also implicit in all of those are failures of governance. And I wonder whether the model of governance for charities, community sector, NGOs, um, needs rethinking um, because it's also about the role of governance in strategy and then ensuring the resources are available for implementation. So, you know, I know certainly in terms of my role on boards, you know, it is actually <laughs> takes a lot of time. Um, and, you know, we still talk about it as a voluntary activity as though it's a, a less important. In the actual fact, it's more important because a lot of our organisations are dealing with life and death issues. You know, it does matter who's on the board. And when we look at who's on the board, how do we get greater diversity on our boards so that we benefit from the talent across the community and all the new knowledges and skills that are part of modern organisations? And, you know, if we're going to think we're going to do that um, based on volunteerism, I just I think we've, we've, we've gone past that now and it's time to really think about how significant governance is to delivering results. And, you know, when we think about funders who are, and I love the conversation um, that I heard about, you know, still talking about administrative costs. Well, what's an administrative cost in a human service? Because answering the phones, doing the payroll, doing the strategy, having governance is all about making sure we've got a quality, effective service. So it's a very false dichotomy and we need these sort of holistic views of the whole system that it takes to really do better for vulnerable people because, I mean, that is the purpose and the call out here, isn't it, that we can't go on allowing people to be vulnerable and disadvantaged and not make progress and the digital divide is really calling that out as a critical new issue where, you know, people are going to be worse off if we don't bring all our best talent to solving that problem and say, no, we have to have 100% digital inclusion. Um, we cannot allow this to become another divider in our society. So I think, you know, sort of the top to bottom um, about how do we invest in our leadership and our governance as well as make sure we're co-designing and understanding the lived experience of the people that we're trying to assist, that is a very holistic and complex process. So we need to make sure that we're articulating the whole picture to government and funders and corporates. So although they might only want to fund one little piece of something, if they actually want a result, then the whole thing has to be funded. We can't skimp and save. You've got to put all the ingredients in if you want to get a cake. You know, you, we've actually got to make sure we've got everything in the mix in order for things to rise together and come out holistically. Joe, it sounded like you were almost calling for directors in the charity sector to be paid. And that's certainly one way to get more focus, although there's been many cases in the private sector where very well-paid directors have failed in their governance duties. 
Is the fundamental issue that we need boards to fully recognise just how complex running a modern charity is, with evolving governance challenges, strategic challenges and new types of risks? Paul, I don't think that there's, it's a simple answer. It's not just about remuneration. Um, I do think it should be considered. But again, if you were to be remunerated, you'd have to be held to standards and accountabilities. And it's not about just, you know, um, showing up saying, you know, I know governance, that there is actually a process around making sure these are people who are able to do that job. So um, what worries me is trying to get younger people onto boards and in terms of some of the new knowledges and skill sets and diverse communities um, onto boards, I think that's really difficult. And certainly my experience has been that that's the case unless we get corporate sponsorship, for instance, of some of their people to come onto board. So I'm not saying just remuneration, but I'm saying, first of all, let's talk about just how sophisticated governance needs to be now. It isn't a historical tick the box did they do put in their reports. The board needs to be involved in the strategy, needs to be involved in, you know, the questions about, well, if this is what's now happening, then what is it we should be doing? Um, you know, what, do you, what are the new opportunities? How do we bring new ideas to the table and then manage that for success as well as for risks? Um, so I just think that it's a very sophisticated process now and we should think about what is it that makes good governance, um, which is more than remuneration. Thanks, Joe. David, you made a really interesting point around a conundrum that's right at the heart of many NGOs at the moment, which is they're operating in a rapidly changing strategic environment, and yet the sector, and particularly some of their key funders, are often quite risk-averse. How does NGO management take more risks in that sort of governance and funding environment? Yeah, and it's, it's often, um, often the challenge to me about engaging with funders and even with government is not just about the sort of measured outcomes and the measured impact, I think too often we ignore uh, the way we enact values um, and how critical that is. I mean, I thought Leonie Valentine made some brilliant points about how we're all marketers. You know, we all communicate, we all have our own little platforms, whether they're our own Twitter accounts or our own email messages or, you know, all of us market in some way uh, about ourselves, about our organisations, about where we are and what we're doing. Uh, I don't do it as much as my children do, but apparently more and more people market themselves as an entity. And and uh, I also think we're also measurers of values. I mean, in every situation we walk into, we're measuring what values are being enacted in that environment. So, uh, for instance, if we walk into uh, a school playground at the morning break, whatever it's called, old now, used to be recess, um, and, uh, you know, we see a teacher walk out amongst the kids and we see the kids kind of pull away a bit and, um, you know, sort of run around But and the teacher walks through and calls out a few things to a few kids. And then uh, another, we walk into another school and a teacher walks out at the same time, morning recess, and the kids come running over and the teacher squats down and engages with them and talks with them. Those schools might have exactly the same syllabus, the same curriculum, 
appear to have the same structure, but the values being enacted in those schools are incredibly different. Just as when you or I walk into uh, see our aged parents in an aged care facility, or I've been in lots of mental health facilities and lots of alcohol and drug facilities. What I'm looking for is the values that are being enacted between people. And all too often, I don't think we as a sector are good at marketing those values to funders. So what we're actually on about is values, not just impact, but values. Uh, I mean, I noticed... Um, a company that I'm aware of uh, because I wear some of their clothing sometime, Patagonia, during the Black Friday sales in uh, the US. I don't know whether you've heard this story, but they refused to sell any goods during the Black Friday sales. They said, no, people have already got too much stuff. Do you really need to buy that jacket or that hoodie or that, you know, they wear sort of out, they sell outdoor gears and they market themselves as being uh, about the planet and uh, the environment. So they, they close their stores on one of the biggest sales days in the US and said, we are not selling anything. And guess what? When they opened their stores, they sold more than any other competitor. You know, that whole process of uh, marketing themselves around their values, we value the environment, we value not everyone going out and buying new stuff all the time, uh, enabled them to sell a lot more new stuff. And I kind of think corporations are doing this so well, you know, co clever corporations like Patagonia are saying, here's our values, they're marketing those values, and off the strength of that marketing of values, they're creating more sales than ever before. And I... You know, when I ask a charity in Australia what they do, they rarely talk about their values. They describe their programs. You know, we run this kind of program, these kinds of kids come in, we do this kind of work. They don't talk about how we, you know, we believe in respect and love and care and that's what builds families and communities. So that's what we're doing here, respect, love and care. No, we're running a program and this is the way the program works. So I think... While we shouldn't get away from the fact that we have to be talking about our impact, we should also be much stronger on the fact that if ever there was a sector in the society that is a keeper of values, it's charities. And yet we seem to be not marketing our values anywhere near as effectively as I see for-profit companies doing it. It's a great insight, David. And as you say that, I think most NGOs would consider themselves values-led. In fact, I think all of them would class themselves as values-led. But it's interesting to consider if that's what they're actually projecting or are they projecting their programming capabilities and kind of putting values to the side um, in their external image. So if that's one thing that NGO leaders are taking from this series to think about, then, then that's great. The other group we've really tried to target throughout this series, though, is funders. And time and time again, the issue of um, funders driving what NGOs can and can't do and, and whether that's a good thing or a bad thing has come up. I put this question to both of you, but starting with you, Joe. what do you think the implications of this series is for, for funders, both philanthropic funders, corporate funders and others? Interesting question, um, <laughs> Rachel. Um, I would hope that from this series, um, 
funders would be touched by more of the complexity of everything that goes on in trying to bring about social change, in trying to look after vulnerable people, some of what David was also um, just talking about, and also that, you know, some of the funders would step back from being so prescriptive. Um, I think it's uh, perpetual trustees, I think it was, that recently had sort of switched to a strategy which was more about, sounded to me like a bit of a Warren Buffett strategy. They were investing in the organisation and then and the leadership and then stepping back and letting them decide what was the best way to achieve the result. And it's part of that conundrum that David talked about earlier where, you know, the people are sort of saying, well, this is my money so I want to control how you spend it, you know, but I actually want you to deliver this, you know, really good result and we need to go back and say, well, you know, if you want that result, then you need to understand what's actually involved in getting there to that result rather than ask us to deliver the result with one hand tied behind our back because we're not allowed to use the money where it's really needed, which may be in a marketing campaign to engage those who are not asking for help. You know, that the 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 people who the, we're finding it hard to reach, we need to focus on spending money that way. So I think if we could get funders to be aware of the depth of knowledge and expertise that does exist in our sector, the values that perform, that form an integrity wraparound to how and what we do. doesn't mean everybody does it right, but in general, we are a sector that are proud of doing the right thing and being and exercising integrity and then come on the journey with us rather than try and control it all, you know, through the, some of the reporting processes. So I think some of the giving circles are really um, demonstrating a much more flexible approach to funding where they want to engage with the people who are trying to solve the problem and learn from them rather than tell them what they should be doing. So I kind of hope they'd get hands off a bit more <laughs> and um, get a lot more interested in understanding what it is we do and what it takes to get to a result. Rachel, most of my best failures have been when I thought I knew what people needed. <laughs> and I, I have to say there's been quite a few of those. Um, and uh, I think uh, just to give you one example, um, when I was CEO of Odyssey House in Victoria and we realised that getting people back into the community with, with a little bit of money behind them so that they could you know, put a bond on a rental property or buy some tools or a car or some furniture or appliances was really critical. So we, and we also wanted them to build a credit rating. So we were very clever. We developed a loan scheme and some of our staff were trained through a community bank to be financial advisors. And we started this loan scheme and, and uh, as Paul will know, being a CEO, you don't want to get into having to make a whole lot of decisions all the time. And I said, look, unless there's a real controversy, I want, you know, the people their peers, the people who've been in treatment and the people who've been in treatment with them and their uh, clinicians who've been working with them to be the ones making the decision. Don't, don't come to me about whether or not a loan should be approved. I'm not going to do that unless it's super controversial or, you know, big risk. And so the first week we started this loan scheme, they said, David, you, you have to make a decision on this one. And I was really annoyed because I was thinking, I thought I agreed I wasn't going to make all these decisions. But this 
guy came. I said, why do I have to make this decision? Uh, this guy wants to spend the money at a gift shop and a travel agent. And then he wants to go to the dentist. And I said, okay, I'll, I'll meet with him. And I knew him because um, he was the ruckman in the footy team and I played in the Odyssey House footy team sometimes and we were talking and he said to me, look, David, um, when I was in New Zealand and using drugs, I hurt people um, that I care about. You know, I, I took money from them and I did the wrong thing. I want to make that up, not by giving them back all that I took from them, but by giving them gifts. And I've been thinking about what kind of gifts to give each one. And I thought, wow, that's pretty impressive. So that was the travel agent and the gift shop. And then he said, you've seen me smile, David. And I said, no, I haven't seen you smile, actually. And he said, yeah, that's my point. And he lost both of his front teeth in the various incidents. And he never smiled. He never opened his mouth, uh, you know, if he could avoid it because he was embarrassed. He wanted two front teeth. That guy is now running uh, a drug treatment service in Victoria. And if I'd said to people, we're going to set up a small loan scheme and it's going to go to gift shops in New Zealand and travel agents and dentists, people would have said, no, you can't do that because that's not helping people get back on their feet. But it, it was exactly what that person needed at that time. And uh, I extrapolate that to charities. You know, people often come in and, and start saying, we think you know what you need. They don't. Almost invariably, they don't. Um, you have to start by listening and only by listening. And I mean listening, not interrogating, not trying to do an ethnographic interview. Just listen. You know, some of the best exchanges that you see, particularly in prison where I've worked or in drug treatment, are just two people sitting with each other. You know, they barely sports, uh, talk. They might offer a smoke or something. And the whole exchange is warm and supportive, but it's not about the words. And I think we've got to learn more to listen to where people are, both as charities, but also as funders. Because if we really want to make a difference, don't presume that we know what people need. It's the biggest mistake I've made. I just wanted to add in to what David was saying by saying, well, let's, let's project that forward and look at the role of data and how data is going to be used in decision-making. And um, we haven't really resolved the issue of people's rights to their own data. And we've got all the issues around children's data on the horizon. And then we have artificial intelligence and machine learning and whether we think we've already found a pattern in data that will be used for decision-making to say, and this is what we should now do, when we really need to circle back, and there's great examples overseas, of taking data to the communities that it's about and saying, so what does this mean to you? Do you think this is accurate? Do you think this is what's going on? Um, and, you know, there's some great examples of where doing data walks by putting the information up and then getting parents around it to say, well, why do you think your children are not doing well here and that these children are doing well there. And they know things like the playground's not safe so their children don't get out and play, which is why they're behind on their physical development. Other children, you know, there's no fresh food venues in this area and that's why they're behind on nutrition, you know. So you don't want people who are looking at that data over here deciding what it actually means. So to David's point, 
even in the future when we're going to do this in new digital um, supported ways, we still need to make sure we go back and respect where that data has come from and understand what it means to those people. Two great points from both of you. But Joe, I want to come back to an issue that you highlighted right at the beginning of this episode around the importance of collaboration. David, I think one of the highlights of the sector's response to COVID has been the increased sector collaboration through mechanisms like the Charities Crisis Cabinet that you helped to set up and organise. However, we know that funding incentivises NGOs to highlight their particular contribution to a complex social or environmental issue and that this incentive often undermines increased collaboration. Is that another one of those big conundrums that sits right at the heart of the sector that we've got to find a way to overcome? Yes. Um, uh, I think it's really hard when um, organisations are trying to offer what they know their community needs and they know other groups are trying to offer what they know their community needs and um, there's a limited resource uh, availability and either your community is going to win out through your organisation or the others. And um, I think we've almost weaponized competition in Australia to a level that that's quite remarkable. I know one of our members, Paul, spent um, over $400,000 on one government tender. Um, and you do find yourself thinking, well, uh, this is quite destructive for the sector. Um, and the capacity to collaborate and base decisions around not so much how much you invest in the tender, but your capacity to make a difference isn't there yet. I mean, we, we don't fund according to likely impact or even outcomes. And because of that, the market is distorted by the kinds of things that do attract funding, which can be things like how much money you spend on the submission, the kinds of people you bring in, uh, the political connections of people, the networks of people. Um, and so I, I think for as long as decision-making is not based on your capacity to achieve change, then the focus tends to be about who can win the tender by whatever method is most appropriate for winning that tender. And that's unfortunately where the problem really is. It's... It, you wouldn't mind if if the answer to that which community gets the limited resource was the one that's going to benefit the most was the was the answer then you wouldn't mind that level of kind of what we're doing is comparing um, how beneficial the investment can be but unfortunately the competition's not on that basis the the competition between charities is often distorted and the market's often distorted and it makes the competition uh, unequal and mean that certain things get prioritised and not ones that necessarily might have made the bigger difference. And that, for me, is the bigger concern. I think Kevin Starr in episode four made a similar sort of point, David. Essentially, there's just not the incentives in the system to drive accountability for outcomes. And it's clearly an issue that we've got to do further work on. But I'd like now to move us to another important topic, and that's the challenge of change. We know that organisational change in NGOs can be particularly difficult because of diffuse governance structures, a lack of change management capability and resources and other issues. But for the sector leaders who want to start to lead transformational change, 
What's the advice that you two have for those leaders? Yes, I think when we're talking about change, we really have to start with the human aspect of it and recognise that, you know, the majority of people are change resistant. And as soon as you use that word change, there are people who stop listening because they start thinking this is going to be uncomfortable. I'm going to lose something that, you know, when we talk about change, we're going to do something new, then we're going to stop doing something. So who's going to miss out? And I think a whole, the language around change is problematic. Um, you know, there's there's not a lot of people, or there's, uh, the, I forget the research about it, but there is actually only a small group of people, um, which I happen to be in, who love change. <laughs> um, and think, you know, and think, oh, I've already done that once, so I don't want to do that again, let's get on and do something different. Um, but that whole idea of the discovery, the excitement of the journey of learning about things that we don't know now, but we will learn about if we engage in a journey. And I think we need to change the language itself of change um, and talk about making progress, increasing our value. Um, you know, the done some work with the Community Services Industry Alliance on talking about, instead of talking about productivity, talking about the value of the community sector, not the productivity of the sector. We need to reclaim language that really reflects what it is we're trying to do. So I think the whole idea of in organisations gathering your people together and talking about what is it we think we should be able to do better? You know, what would its success look like? What would it look like if we didn't have to turn away 40% of the people who ask for help? Or, you know, what is the problem that we're trying to solve? And what's the journey we can go on to get there? And what are the parts of that that we need to, we need to embrace? Is it that we need to use some new technology? Is it that we should stop doing these things because it's more important that we do other things? So I think the way we talk about making progress or moving forward we can make that an empowering process for people or we make it a scary process for people so I'm I'm really one who believes in you know the importance of you know strategy as empowering people and getting them involved in a journey towards where we want to go that will be better for the people that we serve and how we work together. Well uh, I think Joe's right you've got to bring people along but the, the fundamental here is that change is going to happen and it's happening you know, increasingly quickly and that's the one pattern we're sure of. And lots of people know how they need to change and can't pull it off, you know, ask Polaroid or Kodak or any number of companies. I think the average turnover of companies in the top 1,000 in the US used to be 50 years. It's now down below 10 years. You know, you don't last at the top long if you're not prepared to change. But for me, I think Kevin um, really made some good points, Kevin Starr, about you need to plan for success. You know, you start, and I've always found this in terms of planning, start with where you want to be. And I, I think the real difficulty with change is starting where you are. So I think the thinking is about saying, where do we want to be? What, what would success look like for us or for the people we serve? And how can we um, not so much get there, but what? how would we know we'd achieve that success? What would the indicators be? And if they're the indicators, how do we work towards those indicators? 
if every child in Australia is going to be better prepared for school, if that's our goal, how do we achieve that? Um, what would the indicators be? Um, and then you start working on trying to deliver those indicators. And I, I think it, it needs to bring people along, but too often what I see is charities who for many years have been passengers in their own programs, who just run their programs, get the money to run the programs and run the programs, um, rather than working on what would success for their community look like, and not just the community that's in their programs, but the community that their purpose is about, and how do they best achieve that? How would they know they were achieving it? What's the measures of success? And then you take those measures of success as targets, as goals. How could you use the resources you currently have to better achieve those goals? And uh, the difficulty I think, as Joe indicated, is letting go of what's not working so well. And we've got to learn to do that. You know, it, all innovation is about letting go. Um, and people need to let go because they can see what success looks like and uh, they're not going to get there unless they do let go. And it can be very hard to let go. You know, it's like I have this image of someone on the edge of the pool or the edge of the ice skating rink. Let go. You're, you're not going to learn to skate if you don't let go of the edge. You're not going to learn to swim if you don't let go of the edge of the pool. You've sort of got to try and bring people with you, but, you know, you're not going to get to success if you don't let go. Thanks, David. I think we're all in absolute agreement that a big takeaway of this season is the importance of change. And as the season has evolved, I've sort of seen three camps emerging of where NGOs are sitting. One would be the NGOs that are embracing the sudden transformative change, um, often necessitated by an event such as COVID or some significant change to their funding. But, you know, overnight, it's a rapid transformation. There's another category where it is a slower, more gradual, incremental change, but it is happening, but it is happening at a slow pace. And then there's this third camp that are resisting the change and that, as you say, are having trouble letting go, are afraid of what they're going to lose um, and are digging their heels in, not ready to change. And it's that third group that I really hope feel a little bit more confident and a little bit more comfortable after listening to this series to start to explore that incremental change with a view to more transformative change down the track. But I hope if there's one big thing that NGOs have gotten out of this season, it's an increased comfort and willingness to change and evolve. Paul, do you agree? Absolutely, Rachel. It reminds me of what Barney Talek argued in a paper last year. NGOs only have three choices, transform, die well, or die badly. And hopefully that's one of the key messages of this podcast series. Resisting change is not an option. Instead, you have to embrace change, or as I think David and Joe put it, let go of the edge of the pool, dive in, be courageous. And I think for funders, find great people running NGOs focused on issues you are passionate about and support them to deliver real impact. Thank you, David. Thank you, Joe. It's been great having you on this podcast. I hope you've really enjoyed this Goodwill Hunters autumn series on the NGO of the future. This winter, Goodwill Hunters will bring you a series of conversations on water for development. Join co-hosts Michael Wilson, the Chief Executive of the Australian Water Partnership, and Rosie Ween, Chief Executive of WaterAid Australia, as they talk to the people who are shaping 
our global water future.